Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. Uh, this week, we'll be talking about the Dutch decision. Uh, we'll be talking about how that affects other leagues, including the Bundesliga. We'll be talking about the great Arsene Wenger and his legacy. We'll be talking about World Cup themes slash songs. Uh, we'll also be doing our combined all-time United States national team. That's both with the men and the women. And that's, that'll be fun. We're going to have a draft and have some fun with that and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Sunday morning? I am doing very well. Hanging in there. What is the uh, latest? Because uh, as we make it through the week, either by text or by social media or any other form of communication out there that we uh, that is so prevalent right now and even more so because of what we're all going through, people get a hold of me and inevitably we start talking about uh, what we had discussed on the pod or, or just in, uh, in private about what we are watching, what we are binging. And it's always a, a, an interesting topic to hear what you are doing. I have a couple of things that I want to mention, but first, how is your binging? How is your television viewing going uh, uh, while we are on lockdown here? Last Monday, I had one of the most emotionally draining nights of television in my life. I watched the series finality of The Plot Against America, then a riveting episode of My Brilliant Friend, into the season finale of Better Call Saul. Three intense one-hour dramas right in a row. So that was something. And then this past week, I watched Unorthodox, which is a Netflix show getting a lot of attention about a young lady who escaped from a Hasidic Jewish community in Brooklyn and fled to Berlin. Uh, I thought that was excellent. Uh, it's just four episodes. I already banged them all out. And uh, next on my list is Ozark, mm. which I am going to start watching this upcoming week. So between like Ozark, Better Call Saul, Narcos... If this soccer thing doesn't work out, I might start a drug cartel because I am now something of an expert on the subject. I've done the requisite research. <laughs> well, uh, stranger things have happened. I uh, hope that you don't, though. Uh, okay, so, and a lot of these things that you're mentioning violate my, my principle and my rule of, while, while they may have come to the end of a season, they're not necessarily the end of the entire show, right? So the end of Better Call Saul, now you're just waiting for the next season? Is that what's happening now, or is it completely done? There's one more season, 13 episodes, and who the heck knows when that's going to be because this might delay ta uh, production of it. And so that's another thing. Look, I, I, you know, as you know, my rule is I don't watch until it's completely done. But, but even saying that, at the very least, if I were to watch something, I would want to know when that next season is coming about. You know, now in this day and age, I mean, back in the uh, olden times, we used to know exactly when the new season was starting and you had the fall and the premieres and all that kind of stuff. But that now there's no rhyme or reason. I guess there's no time anyway right now. Days, months, time doesn't matter anymore in the world that we live in. Not that it ever mattered for the, uh, the TV production that goes on right now. All right, so a couple of things that I have watched, good and bad. Uh, I mentioned Waco, I think, uh, last, uh, last week. The, uh, and that has, I think, six episodes on, uh, on Netflix. And uh, my friend Keith Costigan actually took my, it was a tepid type of recommendation, but still, if we weren't in this lockdown right now, I'm not sure I would be recommending it, but it gets you through uh, a few days and stuff like that. I finished that, and as I had said before, it's way too long, but in this day and age, what is too long anymore, right? So, but it's, I think it's still worth it. I didn't learn a whole lot, and I thought it was slanted in, in a certain way, as is as to be expected. Uh, but it was still entertaining. Uh, but it was much more of a, a docudrama and a glorified television version. I mentioned that. So that's the okay. The good was on HBO, actually. I'm sorry, on Apple TV, excuse me, if anybody has that. Um, the Beastie Boys story. It's a documentary uh, on the Beastie Boys. Now, the mark of a good documentary, as we have often said on this pod, is even if you don't enjoy or know anything about the subject, if you still enjoy the documentary, for me, that's great. So for, so for example, watching Senna or watching the Maradona or watching the two Escobars, you didn't have to like soccer or auto racing or anything to care about what was going on and to be really be, be interested and intrigued by those documentaries. The Beastie Boys documentary for me is that type of documentary. First off, I am not a Beastie Boys fan. I grew up knowing what the Beastie Boys are, but it just never appealed to me. Having said that, 
this was really, really interesting. Two of the three Beastie Boys are on stage. And what they did was they did a night where they filmed on stage in front of a live audience this retrospective of their career with audiovisual aids. And so it was, it was much more of an actual performance and a concert, if you will, with a look back. It was really fascinating. It was really artistic and creative in the way that they did it, but it also lived up to what a documentary needs to be. So that was, that was really, really good. I recommend that highly, even for people that don't necessarily like the Beastie Boys. And if you like it, it's, you know, it's right up your alley to understand where they came from and how it all happened. And then I don't know if you know this, Mossy, but Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know him, right? I love Arnold. I love Arnold. Uh, and certainly his movie career has, is vast and, and long. But what I didn't know was there's all of these movies that he did. Remember when he was uh, governor, obviously he had to go back and, and make some money. And some of them were more high profile. But he cranked out a bunch of movies that in the olden days, once again, you would, be, you would say it goes directly to tape, right? Directly to the, the video store, uh, direct to video type of things. So he's got this whole collection of movies that he's been in over the last couple of years that for the most part, aren't great, but I, I have, I have uh, taken to watching them. One of them is called Aftermath. It's on, uh, it's on Netflix. It's actually a fascinating true story based on true events, uh, if you want to read up on it, but the movie is not, is not great. And it was a couple hours that I'm never going to get back. And specifically because Arnold, we all know, is, is Arnold, and I love him, but he's limited as to what he can do. This would have been so much better if it hadn't been Arnold uh, actually, uh, actually in this, even though I... I, uh, I love Arnold. And it's not that he can't do drama and he can't do interesting things, but it just didn't work in this one. So, but we continue to watch different things. Is there anything now that you are, uh, that you are looking forward to in the next week or so uh, that is either coming online or are you just waiting uh, and savoring or waiting to, uh, to access? Well, you know, we're taping this on Sunday morning. Tonight, we've got the next two episodes of The Last Dance, the ESPN documentary ah, yes. about the Chicago Bulls. Uh, I've still got Killing Eve on BBC America. My brilliant friend, as I mentioned, there's still a few episodes left to, of that season. So, so yeah, I've got some things going on. So the, the Jordan doc, they're just putting out two episodes each week. Is that what happens? So we, we've done one week. So two of them, I think there's 10, if I, if I remember correctly. So I got another four weeks or three weeks before all 10 are out so I can actually watch it. And then we can, I can join the conversation. And different episodes are, are devoted to different players. Apparently, one of the episodes tonight is the quote unquote Rodman episode. That will delve into Dennis Rodman and also the uh, Chicago Bulls rivalry with the Bad Boy Pistons. So I know you're not the biggest NBA fan, but that might be something that would resonate. That, no, that that may interest me. Uh, you, you're talking Bad Boys now. You're talking my uh, my kind of language there. All right, Mossy, enough of this uh, of this talk. Shall we talk about some soccer? We ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, uh, each and every week, we often kick the pod off with my State of the Union. But in, in this lockdown type of scenario, as we have been now for, I've, I've lost track of how many weeks, we go, we go right into the talk and right into the news that is happening. Even though nobody is actually kicking a ball yet in terms of the, uh, the professional game on the field for us to talk about, there is still plenty of happening in the world of soccer. And we're going to start it off with news coming out of Holland, the Netherlands, if you will. And the Eredivisie, is that uh, pronounced correctly, Mossy? I always worry about that, the first division over there in Holland. Mossy, tell the folks what's happening uh, right now and the news over the last week. Okay, so the Eredivisie, the Dutch first division, was planning to come back in mid-June behind closed doors, but the Dutch government extended the ban on sporting events until September 1st. So at that point, they decided that they could not finish this season and they'll just start the next season come September. And so the question then became, do you void this season altogether or do you recognize the table as it is? And what they did, which was interesting, they kind of split the difference on it. They did not award a champion. Ajax was in first place. They were level on points with AZ Alkmaar, but ahead on goal difference, but they were not awarded the title. And they are not doing promotion relegation, but the Champions League and Europa League berths will be handed out based on the way the table was when play was stopped. And that's important because UEFA do not want these countries to void this season. And the hammer they've been holding over everybody's head is that they've been saying, we might not accept the team that you send to the Champions League and Europa League next season if we don't approve of the method of, by which they qualified. And so the, the Eredivisie is doing is saying, we're going to recognize the table as it is for that. So that satisfies UEFA. And then whether we award a champion or not or, or do promotion and relegation, that's none of UEFA's business. That's for us to decide on our own. So it's an interesting sort of path they've laid out here for other countries that have been sort of struggling with this decision. So that's kind of where we are right now. 
All right. So I don't know how to say well done in Dutch, but if I could, I would say well done. And we talked over the last couple of weeks that as these leagues try to figure out what they are going to do and what they are going to be, the the concept of fairness and being fair is going to get thrown around. And the reality is that no matter what happens, the good, the bad in between, it's never going to be fair. And that is a reflection on the unprecedented times that we have. This is a situation where you're trying to make the best of a crappy situation. And at all times, no matter what you do, somebody is going to complain. Uh, people are already complaining in the form of considering legal options, whether it's uh, Azed and uh, you know the, the fact that they were there and not getting the opportunity to possibly pip uh, IX at the, at the end there, or others that just feel that this is unfair and feel aggrieved. And usually it comes down to to money and it comes down to the business that is behind all of this. But also the fact that they didn't, that there's no pro or rel, there's no promotion or, or relegation. It's, it's one thing not to have relegation. It's another thing not to have promotion. And I've, I've seen people talk about how that for this instance, what you do is you don't punish people for not having every opportunity to stay in a division but you do reward people for the work that they have done that would have potentially propelled them into that. So you, you, you fall upward as opposed to falling backwards. And so it's interesting that they did neither because there's been proposals of saying whoever was going to get promoted, promote them. You just add a couple of teams or however many teams you usually do it and then play that season out. But the problem with that is, and we've talked about this before, Mossy, is that I don't want leagues doing things right now to force the season to be completed that are going to hurt future seasons. And I think this was done with an eye to, all right, look, our 20, or what I guess would be our 1920 season from an Eredivisie perspective is always going to have that caveat, is always going to have, have that asterisk. Let's just bite the bullet. Let's deal with it right now. And let's start anew when we start that new season. Even if we're starting that new season in front of empty houses without, with, without fans, at least we're starting it without additional teams because you have additional teams. And once again, then that next season is going to have that caveat and that asterisk because, hey, there were two more teams. You had to play more games or you didn't have to play this person and stuff like that. And there's always going to be that argument. I think they're trying to avoid, avoid that saying, this is crap, but let's have this crap time uh, to the extent that we can be encapsulated and not let it leak out and taint future, uh, future seasons. Well, first off, let me echo your thoughts that these are all bad solutions. Um, so every scenario, somebody's going to feel hard done, but you're trying the to best pick bad what, solutions. What exactly, we're trying to find. the best bad solution. There are some people that feel like playing in, in empty stadiums is farcical and that you might as well pull the plug on all these seasons. Now I'm of the belief that if you can play in empty stadiums over the next couple of months and do so in a way that's healthy for everybody, that you should go ahead and do it. I think finishing out the season in empty stadiums will give it a greater degree of legitimacy than if you just stop the seasons now. However, there are others who feel like even if you have to wait till August or September, we should finish this current season at all costs. I'm not on that page. I do think once you start getting into August, September, if that's when you could resume play and you're five, six months removed from having played previously, then that does start to get a little bit farcical and disconnected. And to me, at that point, you should pull the plug on this season and, and start planning for the start of the next one, which then raises this question of, of what do you do? Do you void this season completely or do you recognize the table as is? Does there have to be uniformity up and down the table? Would you be comfortable with a scenario where you, you don't award a champion, but you do do promotion relegation or vice versa? You, you award a champion, but you don't do promotion relegation. You know what I'm saying? So it, it's sort of this question about how, how you should handle it. I think that in, in the Netherlands, especially with this being this close, not awarding a champion, and I think it is case by case, not awarding a champion is completely legitimate. We're talking about the EPL, for example, where Liverpool is so far ahead. I think it's completely justified. And I guess I would use the word fair, even though we know that fair has taken on a different meaning in this, in this context, to say that Liverpool are the champions for this season that we all recognize is going to have that asterisk. And we're not, we're not debating that. But to give Liverpool that title this year, I think is, I think is what, what can be done and absolutely can be justified by the powers that be if they determine that that's what they're going to be. But the voiding and the word voiding of a whole season 
and what that entails, as you mentioned, both the ramifications internally and externally, you know, the, the goals that were scored, the games that happened, the, the moments that happened, do they just poof and magically disappear? I mean, from a statistical perspective, do they, do they actually continue to exist or are they just completely negated? If, for example, the Bundesliga voided the entire season, if they were to follow suit and, and avoid it, would Holland, would, would his goals and that incredible period that we have just poof, cease to exist? You know, if you, if you score a goal in avoided season, did you actually score a goal? Yeah, I think the option of avoiding the season completely and pretending like eight months of soccer never happened, that's pretty much gone out the window with, with Wafa saying that, no, if you do that, we're not going to allow... Uh, because Jean-Michel Aulas, the president of Lyon, proposed voiding the Ligue 1 season and that the Champions League representatives next season should be the same ones from, that, from this season, which was very self-serving because Lyon are in the Champions League this season and they're only in seventh place in Lyon, so they're likely not going to be in it for next season. And yeah. he was derided for, you know, shamelessly, you know, self-serving, uh, self-serving position. It seems like that's pretty much gone out the window. That the, what the Eredivisie did, it, at the very least, you're going to do that. You're going to recognize this table, at least in terms of European qualification, which just does mean to some degree you're recognizing that, that this season happened. And I think those numbers, the records, the milestones are going to stay. But, you know, whether you can do that and then not award a champion in, in, in Netherlands, they decided, yes, you can do that. So, I mean, that's going to be the question that these leagues are going to be grappling with. And, you know, at the beginning of all this, I did wonder if UEFA was going to push for there to be some uniformity amongst all the countries. And, and it seems like, no, they recognize that this crisis is affecting countries differently. On the one hand, you have Germany talking about coming back in May, while in the Netherlands, they couldn't come back until September. And so they're going to let each country kind of figure out what's best for them. But, you know, to me, it still gets back to this question of uniformity across the table. Is it odd to recognize something at the very top, but not at the bottom? Award Liverpool the title, but not do promotion relegation. So I think that's the question that everybody's grappling with right now. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of loose ends, and there's going to be a lot of oddities, and there's going to be a lot of, not confusion, but scratching of heads when these things ultimately come out. And I think that that's a reflection of, uh, of what, we t uh, what we talk about. Also, I think I should... Uh, you know, make a point to everyone listening or watching that, you know, we're talking obviously about the upper echelon of teams. And yet this, these dramatic times are inflicting pain, certainly on, on that part of the business, but it gets even worse and worse as you get further on down, especially when you come to second, third and lower division uh, teams that don't have the television contracts, uh, that don't have that money from a television contract. So the actual playing of games, okay, in an empty stadium doesn't necessarily change the, uh, the pain that is going to be that is going to be inflicted. And so when you have lower division teams and teams that require and rely so much on that game day revenue, whether it's ticketing, uh, whether it's concessions, whether it's uh, merchandise, parking, uh, the marketing that comes with the game day type of marketing that happens, all of those different things that you can't satisfy, then that equation and that business equation, it starts to be very, very different than for the elites of the world, if you if you will, when it comes to the uh, the first divisions out there, and that what they are considering and what they are calculating when uh, when it comes to putting on these uh, games uh, these games going forward. So, you know, this isn't a well, I guess it is a kind of a, a doom and gloom. While I remain cautiously optimistic that we will get back to playing soccer, the ramifications uh, are going to be long lasting, and there will be there will be pain felt throughout our sport uh, at all levels and in all countries because of this, because, you know, it is a tenuous at best type of existence that a lot of these teams have. And without that revenue and without that, that season long of revenue that is so closely associated and tied to having people in the stadium and what happens when you have those for 20 or 25 dates through the year, it starts to change the, the economics and the business very, very quickly. Anything before we finish up here, Mossy? Well, just very quickly uh, on MLS. If you're going to try to abide by the current calendar, then it looks like they are going to have to explore some sort of tournament scenario, all games played in the same location. But there are those, I'm sure you've heard them on Twitter, that think this is now the perfect opportunity to switch to a quote-unquote, European calendar. And by the way, there's a similar debate going on in Brazil where they've been dealing with this question of whether or not to conform to the European calendar. Uh, what do you make of that debate? Well, unless the 
uh, coronavirus has somehow magically changed the seasons that we have. Uh, it doesn't change the challenges that are the very reason and a big reason why uh, MLS in this case or other leagues, I don't know what their reasons are, but I'm talking about MLS uh, and many of the leagues in the U.S. recognize that it's very difficult to sell the game even in the best of circumstances. And it gets more difficult, especially in some of these places where either people just don't want to come out and watch soccer in the depths of cold winter. And it's very difficult to sell that type of thing. And it's one thing if you're from a warm area where you can do it, but put yourself in their shoes and in their seats trying to sell that on a continual basis. So I don't, I don't see this as changing. I don't see everyone perking up from an MLS perspective saying, hey, this is a opportunity here. This is a silver lining from this moment that will enable us to change. If they wanted to change, they had plenty of opportunity over the years to change and to, and to do that. If, it's, if it is this, as I said, this panacea or this magic bullet, then they had plenty of opportunity to change. But I don't see this, albeit unprecedented in time, um, being the catalyst for making that change. Do you? No, no, I agree with you. No, no. All right. Well, listen, things continue to come out and, you know, we just had the, the latest pushback of a date when it comes to major league soccer and the opening of, uh, of training facilities. And so these dates get thrown out there and they are targets. They are optimistic targets at best, but we all know, especially, you know, relative to the safety, that's the most important thing. And leagues have to work within uh, the restraints and the confines and the regulations uh, of their countries. And so just because a league says that they would like to do this doesn't mean that that, uh, that, is, actually going, uh, that is actually going to happen. This is a fluid type of situation that we're going through here. Fingers crossed uh, from a Bundesliga perspective, which I guess right now would be the first one to come online to actually play games. Fingers crossed that it continues to head in that direction and that we get to see uh, the Bundesliga teams actually kicking a ball and what that looks like and that the players and the, uh, the personnel involved are safe and that this is, as we've said many times, this canary in a coal mine type of situation that provides a template for at least a a return to people kicking the ball. I know it's not normal and I know it's not what we're used to and traditional, but maybe this is the start of uh, some professional sports, not just soccer, but professional sports coming back to give us that escape that we all know pales in comparison to everything else. But we will see going forward. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, let's move on to some Ask Alexi. You know that portion of the show when uh, you use that hashtag Ask Alexi and you send us your comments, questions, and concerns out there on all the uh, social media platforms, the Twitters, and the Facebooks, and the Instagrams, and I guess TikToks and all the different places out there. I don't know if, if, uh, if they have that out there, but you use that hashtag Ask Alexi or Ask Mossy for that matter. And you send us through and we pick three as we're about to do here. And we read off some questions uh, as I, and some comments and concerns. What do the people want to know this week, Mossy? First up, at SC5145, which one would you choose to start a team, Dempsey, Donovan, or McBride? Interesting. So I often get the question between Dempsey and Donovan, and I always come out on the side of if it's a bar fight or a street game, <laughs> I'm always going to go with Dempsey. If it's a World Cup game, uh, I'm always going to go with, with, uh, with Donovan. But when you add McBride to the picture, and as SC5145 asked, choosing to start a team, that, that changes the equation quite a bit. So it between Clint Dempsey, Landon Donovan, or Brian McBride, who would I pick to start my team with? Brian McBride. Every single time. And this is, this is why I would pick Brian McBride. So you're choosing to start a team. And theoretically, this first choice is somebody that you're going to be able to build around. So obviously, they have to have the ability and the talent. I think all three of those uh, in equal parts, but in different ways, have as much talent as we have seen from Americans uh, over history in different ways, as I said. Brian McBride, right now, if I look at those three, he's the only one that I actually know what position he plays, okay? And that in and of itself, there is a value to. So Brian McBride, we know one of the greats uh, when it comes to the air. He didn't get a lot of credit for the work that he did in terms of holding the ball up. And he was much better than with his feet than people gave him credit for. But certainly in the air, just incredible prowess. And so automatically, I have an idea when I put Brian McBride in my team, how we are going to play because you have someone that is going to provide that outlet in terms of possession, but you have also someone that loves the ball in the air, either to actually go on goal or to flick on. And so there is 
in, in Brian McBride already there is a style of play as opposed to Clint Dempsey, who we know famously, Bruce Arena said he, he just, he tries shit. Okay, but that's not a style of play, trying shit, okay? And then you have Landon Donovan who is efficient and one of the greats, but he doesn't, he doesn't carry a team. Uh, and he doesn't dictate how your team is going to play. So for me, it would be Brian McBride if I was choosing to start a team, because when I make that pick, I know immediately what kind of team I am going to get. All right. Mossy, would you agree with that? Or would you have anything to add to that? Does my, uh, does my rationale make sense? It does make sense. I, I think I would still go Donovan. I just think he's the most okay. gifted player of uh, the three. And well, that's a different question. That's a different question. Okay. You're right. But, you're right. But, but okay. All right. All right. What else, Mossy? Next up, at the Smiths, 1986. Two years ago this week, Arsene Wenger left Arsenal. What do you feel being overseas is his legacy? Evidently, he has a legacy in England, and now this guy's wondering all the way over here in America, is his legacy any different? Have we? Yeah. Have we somehow? Uh, uh, has it been? changed in some way. No, I mean, when I think of Arsene Wenger, I think of one of the great managers in history of the game, but in particular, obviously, he will forever be tied to Arsenal and what he was able to do. We know that it almost is two different chapters in the first part, which not only was successful, but was historically successful and really came to define him and in doing so, define what Arsenal was in that period. Uh, the success, the teams, the way that they went about it, uh, the consistency that they had. And then the second chapter of that story is where it gets, it gets murky. But, but in doing so, I think it, it all, for me, it only confirmed or reaffirmed how important he was to not just Arsenal, but an ever-changing landscape of what, what football, uh, soccer, and where Arsenal fit in. He was able to make that transition from what he knew and was very, very good at to the, the I don't even know if this is a word, the businessification of the, of the sport uh, to a much greater degree than we had ever seen. And he had to evolve and change. But in doing so, his his legacy and his reputation took a hit. And some of it was fair, not all of it was fair. But to answer your question, I don't think that, look, and if you were born at a different time, you don't have the context and the understanding of what, what came before. And so you'll only look at Wenger, especially in social media, where he was getting just criticized every single day and Wenger out and all that kind of stuff, then you'll have a warped perception of what he actually was what he is and how important he was not just to arsenal but to the game and obviously to the evolution of the epl Masi's thoughts yeah the nature of these things is that the farther removed you get from it the good outweighs the bad the good endures more and and rightly so with wenger um as you mentioned he's an immensely important figure in premier league history that, that because of the kind of player that he started to bring to the premier league and the kind of football that arsenal played and obviously the success, three Premier League titles, seven FA Cup crowns, the Invincibles and all the rest. I will say, though, a couple things. While with Manchester United, we look at their failing as their inability to preserve that winning culture and winning identity that Sir Alex Ferguson had instilled. I think when you look at Arsenal the last couple of years, their failing has been the inability to move away from the staleness that had set in during the, the last few years of Arsene Wenger. So th as much of a legend as he is, you see a club that's trying to kind of disassociate from him in a way, uh, at least in terms of what the last part of his career was there. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic. Also, I would say, you know, Wenger, he's in his 70s now. He's, he's was just appointed uh, FIFA's director of global development. So nobody would begrudge him if he just wanted to focus on that and right off into the sunset. He keeps saying, though, in interviews that he misses it and he wants to get back to either management or a front office position. And yet he's had a couple of opportunities here that I think would have been interesting that he's turned down. So I think he's sort of caught in between. Part of him wants to do it. Part of him doesn't. I keep going back to Bayern in, in November. When they sacked Nico Kovac, their initial inclination was to appoint Wenger in a sort of Hugh Pinkus or Gus Hennig mm -hmm. with Chelsea kind of role. And he 
kind of waffled on it. And so they ended up, they hired Hamzi Flick as a caretaker. And lo and behold, he goes out and beats Dortmund 4-0 in his first game. So at that point, with Wenger kind of waffling, they said, oh, we'll just stick with Hamzi Flick. And lo and behold, he's done such a good job that now they've given him the job permanently. And I look back at that and, boy, that would have been interesting for Wenger to, to take charge of Bayern Munich for the rest of the season. Now, not knowing what would become of this season, but it would have been a chance to certainly win a Bundesliga title, maybe take a shot at winning a Champions League crown. Uh, another option that's come up is Ren. They wanted to offer him their, their president and technical director job. Ren are owned by one of the richest men in the world. He would have had tons of money to work with, and it would have been interesting to see what he could have done there. He kind of swatted that away. So I'm not sure where Wenger's head is at now, whether he wants to come back to the game or not. But as far as his legacy, uh, just let me finish with this. If... Uh... It is not the responsibility of a generation to understand, appreciate, or respect what happened before, okay? It is Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? And so whether it's overseas or not, I still think that there is a group that looks at him in that period, as you mentioned, Mossy, and therefore is going to judge him by that. Once again, soccer isn't fair and life isn't fair, okay? And that type of perception of him, while for those of us that kind of straddled those two, uh, those two times, we can look at it and say, well, that's not quite what he was uh, or is. I can't hold them accountable for not having that context or having that past. That's, that's the way of the world. Uh, and oftentimes, it's what you have finished on as opposed to what you started as. And for him, whatever luck or bad luck he had it was he started off great and didn't finish great and so that there's a whole portion of people that only saw the part that where, where he didn't finish great all right uh, any other questions here Moss? i think we got one more right last one at young marvin g which what a stupid twitter name i mean i don't know who this <laughs> individual is but he, he asks what's the best world cup song of all time while not the official theme of the 2010 world cup wave and flag by Kanan is my favorite okay so we know, well, we don't know much about young Marvin G, except we do know that he is a, a shill and an artificial plastic type of person because he went and picked a song from the 2010 World Cup that was the Coca-Cola official promotional anthem, okay? So, you know, he is absolutely in bed with the man. He is uh, someone that only cares about dollar signs. There's no romance or passion in his body when it comes to not just, not just uh, soccer, not just music, but life, I venture to guess. But it does bring up a point where there are lots of different themes and songs when it comes to it. And as we've gotten further and further along, there become more and more and more. And the actual official anthem or the official song, which are two different things, have become more and more important as we've gone along. The way I look at it is, and once again, I'm coming up from a, time, from a time where, I guess from, even though I watched 86, I don't associate any music with 86. I don't associate any music with 90. The only music that I associate with, where I started associating music with the World Cup was 94. And obviously with my involvement, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's why. So in 94, starting in 94, that's when I associate a song uh, with it. 94, uh, it was not great. Look, I love Daryl Hall. Uh, wonderful, wonderful singer, songwriter, performer. Paul and Oates, right up there, one of the great bands in uh, in rock history. But it was a forgettable type of, well, it wasn't forgettable because you play it constantly in Gloryland. I still know it today, but it was not, it, it didn't live up to what I thought uh, it could have been. When it comes to the actual songs, I think that 98 for me will forever be colored by the cup of life. And it was ubiquitous. It was something that I cannot divorce myself of from that song representing what the World Cup is in 98. So that for me, I think, I think is the best. But I know there were people that will, you know, go for Waka Waka in, in 2010. And maybe you have some other ones, Mossy, that uh, you want to throw out there. Well, I hate to say it, but I agree with young Marvin G. I love that uh, Waving Flag by Kanan. I found that song very addictive. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, you're a big Kanan fan. I mean, let's be honest. I, I mean, you know, you have his whole catalog, and I know you, you, you go deep when it comes to Kanan. It I mean, is Kanan? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, I mean, you only know his, his big commercial hits. I know right, the exactly. songs that Reno, sort of the, the hidden exactly. gems. The, the, the acoustic versions. Yes. Uh, the, the uncut demos, if you will. And any songs that you want to point to there, Mossy, when it comes to uh, World Cups? Well, Do you really remember what the, uh, 
what the, it wasn't what the, the Russia one was? It wasn't, I don't think it was the official song, but there was a tune that, uh, that uh, composer Richter put together for us that we use for all our teases. And I love that. I thought it was very dramatic music. Uh, I, 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 it's look, it's, it is, you know, we're, we're, we're making fun of it to a certain extent, but it, it is a hard thing to do to write a song that the world embraces. First off, you have to deal with language. Uh, you have to, and even remember when, uh, when Waka Waka came out, the great Shakira, she took a lot of criticism at the time when it all came out. Now she, she made her way through and it became a huge, huge hit, but inevitably it's one thing to have your 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 fans or your country or your culture assessing and critiquing it's another thing to have the entire world and a whole lot of people that maybe have never even heard of you once this song is anointed everybody's going to have an opinion and does it correctly reflect the country and culture where it's coming from is it proper is it something that everybody can sing and so from a writing perspective uh, it, it poses a lot of uh, challenges to any type of writer to make something that is accessible, that is memorable, but isn't completely dumbed down. And I think that, you know, Ricky Martin and obviously the writers of, uh, of that song in 1998, uh, The Cup of Life, I mean, that, that's a good song even without the World Cup and that it was representative of the World Cup in the way that they used it. That's where they were... I think they are hitting on all cylinders right there, and uh, but they don't all, it all, doesn't always happen. And the fact that Desmond Child, uh, one of the great writers and, and producers out there, was uh, part of that writing team should be should come as no surprise. Uh, Ricky did the right thing and made sure he went got the best, as did FIFA, and uh, they got a song that immediately brings you into what that World Cup was in 1998. Was Honestly, that, anything else? Alley, 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 right? That's how it yeah. went. Yeah, exactly, and it it, it was. It was an, it was an, it was international enough, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't something that took people that didn't ne even necessarily follow soccer out of it. Everybody could find something in that song to grab onto and to celebrate. And it was simple enough, but it was international enough. It was cosmopolitan. It was dancey enough, but it was poppy enough. Uh, just, just mwah, perfect, perfect, perfect. Uh, let us know if you have other songs. I'm sure that there's going to be some people out there in the weeds that are coming at me with the, uh, you know, with the with the never heard '66 uh, song or the uh, back in '78, all the great songs that were uh, involved with there. I, I I don't know if they were, but I'm sure we'll be told by everybody about how we uh, we missed some songs out there. Uh, all right, is that the end of uh, Ask Alexi, Mossy? That is it. All right, uh, we are moving on. All right, so if you remember from last week, we had a little bit of fun with the uh, NFL draft. Mossy, first off, I didn't realize that the NFL draft uh, went two days. I, I thought I was, you know, one and done. I, I you know, because I tuned in and I, I checked it out. It was okay. It was, it was interesting. I thought ESPN actually did a very good job of televising it. But we also had some fun last week with, uh, with our draft. And we thought, you know, let's, let's continue on. You know, we were we had some wonderful reaction to it, including a uh, shout out from Scott Davis. And he actually said, hey, what I'd love to see is you guys do another draft with the U.S. national teams. And it got us to thinking that let's do something that's a little bit different. We could certainly do our, you know, our, our best U.S. all-time men's team, your best U.S. Uh, women's team. But we said, let's combine it. And let's do our best combined men's and women's all-time U.S. national team. And so what we've done here in terms of the rules is we've said, okay, you get 11 players, obviously. We've kind of said, let's, let's keep it with that 4-3-3. And let's, let's do this. Let's have six women and six men. Uh, that have played for the national team in the past. So the whole, you know, the whole uh, group is out there for you to pick from. Uh, six Last and five. Week, what's that? You said six and six, six and five. Did I say six and six? Yeah. That would be awesome if we were able to go and play with 12 players. But obviously it's six and five for the 11. Uh, thank you for correcting me there, Mossy. Uh, last week, if you remember, I got the first pick, but the powers that be have said, all right, turnabout is fair play. This week, Mossy has the first pick. And what we have done is we're going to alternate uh, we're, uh, we're going to alternate back and forth, but we're also going to alternate. We're taking women first, then men, women first, back and forth like that. So, Mossy, we, uh, we, we got together before the show just in an, in an effort to be efficient about this, to try to figure out what we're going to do. And now we're going to do the actual draft. We, have, we both have an idea of what we are going to uh, do. But uh, as I said, you get the first pick. You are on the clock, my friend. Once again, 
the best, in your estimation, combined U.S. national team between men and women. Six women, five men to give you your best 11. Mossy, you're on the clock. Well, before we get to my pick, a couple of things. The NFL draft was three days long, and thank God, because uh, the third day is when there was a host, uh, there were a host of Michigan players selected, which brought our total up to 10, by the way. We were tied for the second most with Ohio State. Only LSU, who had 14, had more. So uh, not a bad uh, three days for University of Michigan, although. <laughs> and, how many, and how many of those players are actually going to play? Uh, not many because they were, like I said, they were mostly late round picks. So the odds of them uh, oh having goodness. significant. Right. Well, I only made it through a little bit of the first day, but I, although, I, I did my, I did my American duty. All right. Although there was a Michigan player that was famously a six round pick in the 2000 draft. And he went on to have a pretty good career, which is, will continue in Tampa Bay this upcoming season. Are you uh, familiar with who I'm speaking of? Yes, I am. Because they show that picture, that 360 picture of him without his shirt on constantly, uh, that evidently is part of the draft, right? They, they put you in your underwear and then they take a picture of you and they do a 360 thing. Yes, that would be Tom Brady, the great Tom Brady. Correct. Uh, and before we get to the soccer thing here, just one, one thing. You mentioned the response to our global draft last week. Uh, I received a lot of tweets from people tweeting me their best 11 with Messi and Ronaldo both in it. So I don't want to insult the intelligence of our, our listeners. I think Alex Dow just, just did a really poor job explaining when he posted this segment on Twitter what the rules <laughs> were. But they, they, I think people think you went off and picked your best 11 in the world. I went off and picked mine and then we compared it. No, we were drafting against each other. So Alexi had the first pick. He chose somebody. That player was then off the board and not available to me. So we couldn't have any of the same players. So right. as it's same as rule. is the case with what we're about to do exactly. right now. Exactly. So just because I don't pick somebody, okay, doesn't mean that I wouldn't have picked them. Okay, there are go people ahead, walking around right now that think you wouldn't have Messi on your world best eleven team, and I wouldn't have eh, Cristiano. Ronaldo. I mean, that's not a great example, but okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, my first pick, which which has to be a U.S. women's player, I am going to go with Mia Hamm, and I am going to. Put her as one of my front three. Uh, we'll okay. figure out formations at the end, but uh, but just know for now that Mia Hamm uh, is going to be one of my front three. The great Mia Hamm. And any reason for that pick other than she's great? Well, I think she is in the conversation for greatest women's player of all time. So it's it's hard not to go with her number one in a, in a draft. All, like this. all right. I will say that this was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be uh, from a strategic perspective. And I have made these position, these picks out of strategy. I, I want to win a game that I am playing and that is reflected on the page. So, you know, once again, just because I don't pick a player doesn't mean that I don't like them or doesn't mean necessarily that they aren't great players. Okay, but in my 11 here, I was very strategic and I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll explain along the way why I made uh, some of these picks. My number one pick is Tobin Heath. Okay, I have had the uh, incredible privilege to actually play in a game and multiple games with uh, Tobin Heath pickup games. And I have seen what she can do uh, and her ability up close. Obviously, we've seen it from, from afar in terms of what she can do in the women's game. And I think she would have no problem being in this type of environment and with her attitude and her passion and her ability to beat people and her ability to be up for the challenge. I think she would relish this opportunity. So she is my number one pick, Tobin Heath. Put it in uh, ink right there in my starting 11. I'm going to play her on the right side of a 4-3-3. Okay, so, so my next pick then has to be a yes. man, uh, per the rules. And I am going to select Eddie Pope for the center of the fence. Oh, bastard. I, I felt it important to lock up that male center back spot because it is slim pickings there, as you know, Alexi. Not a lot of good <laughs> options. Right? Yes, it is. I mean, you know, it's, it's scorched earth pretty much since the uh, mid-90s, let's, uh, let's be honest. But I actually had Eddie Pope as my number one pick, so you have already taken somebody that I would have taken. So, all right, but I, I will move on. Uh, my second pick is going to be on the other side of the field. So I'm going to have Tobin on the right-hand side of that top three. I'm going to have the great Landon Donovan on the left-hand side uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which he's very, very good. He also, in his new capacity as coach down there in San Diego, has gone and hired women. Uh, not necessarily that anybody else has to do that in order to make my 11, but I'm looking at everything. I'm looking at things on and off the field in terms of my assessment of these players and how they would function in this type of environment where you have both men and women playing in a starting 11 for the United States. And I think that 
you know, because of the player that he is and because of his actions, I think that he would be more comfortable and more amenable to a situation like this. So I'm going to go with Landon Donovan. Okay, so for my next pick, I took Michelle Akers, who uh, I said earlier, Mia Hamm, in the conversation for the greatest women's player of all time, I think Michelle Akers is, is there too. In fact, the Hamm versus Akers, who's the greatest U.S. women's player of all time, is a really fun debate, which I found, you know, being in, in, in Paris in the summer of 2019 for the Women's World Cup and sort of asking different people who are close followers of, of U.S. women's national team over the years. It's a really fun debate that kind of splits the fan base. It is. It is. And that's there's another we were talking earlier in the pod about how people have, you know, sometimes you know, misconceptions. And uh, when you don't live through a time, you don't appreciate or understand uh, how it, how good and how, um, and how skillful and how important some of these players are. And just because of time and when they were when they happened, sometimes they don't get the credit and the respect that they deserve. But that's, that's the way the world works. All right, number three now. I'm going to pick Julie Ertz, okay, as one of my midfield destroyers. We know what she can do. We've seen it. Um, also, given her, her marital situation, if anybody understands the psyche of male athletes, it is her. Uh, and so I think that she would not only bring what she already has, but also an understanding and a management that uh, will be incredibly valuable to my midfield and to my team in terms of the dynamic and the communication that's going on. Okay, my next pick would be Tab Ramos. A very wise colleague of mine once said of Tab Ramos, he was a man before his mm -hmm. time. Tab Ramos is a guy who, uh, whenever you know the current generation of US fans makes a big deal about Christian Pulisic and the transfer fees that he's commanding and the interest from some teams like Chelsea. It's always pointed out to me from people in your generation that had Tab Ramos come along today, he'd be like a 60 million euro player for a Chelsea. So uh, he was that good. Okay, uh, so you're going with Tab off the board for me. That's a pity because I, I probably would have taken him. Somebody who was not a man out of time, but I am still going to pick him because I think uh, for those of you that, that follow him, uh, he's a wild card, but also one of the great strikers and finishers, whether it's in the in the run of play or on free kicks, uh, has uh, children that play, including daughters uh, at a high level. So I'm gonna go with Eric Winalda as my fourth pick right up top. Eric Winalda up top. So I already have my top three filled in. Landon Donovan on the left, Tobin Heath on the right, and Eric Winalda up top. I don't rate Winaldo that highly as a striker, but I will say he's the best uh, on-air co-host I've ever had, for sure. <laughs> That's, that, well, there's no doubt about that. Next up for me, back to the women, I'm going to go with Becky Sauerbrunn. So I've now um, locked up my center back pairing, Eddie Pope and Becky Sauerbrunn. Okay. Yeah, you're, so I'm, I'm concentrating most of my efforts still up the field. I have not even delved into the back yet, but okay. So you have Becky. That's a good pick, Mossy. That's a really good pick. All right, I'm going to go with the great Christine Lilly in my midfield three along with Julie Ertz just because she is I think at times underappreciated and having said that for the amount of accolades and praise that she does get I still think that she is under underappreciated and so I think she would be a wonderful addition uh, to my midfield right there in front of Julie Ertz who's cleaning up behind her. Okay my next pick is Steve Cherundolo at right back. Uh, we've talked yeah. about him before. A wonderful career. That's a, so he slots in in the back line. And so far includes Chirundolo, Pope, and Sauerbrunn. That's good. It's a good back. It's a good back four. I'm going to, uh, with my sixth pick here, I'm going to complete my front six here, I guess. Um, yeah. I'm going to go with the great, and he was a great until he was cut down by injuries, John O'Brien. Uh, right now, uh, he's moved on with his life. He's a clinical uh, psychologist. I think he has a doctorate in clinical psychology. So he understands, once again, the psyche of this type of situation. I think he would be operating on a different plane, not just his physical abilities, but his mental abilities to understand the dynamics that exist in this type of situation. I'm going to have him also in my midfield. So my midfield three is Lily, Hertz, and O'Brien. Okay, my next pick is Carly Lloyd, who I am going to play as kind of an attacking midfielder. Like I said, we'll figure out the formation at the end, but I have her as one of my midfield three, um, which might be a little bit of a stretch, but we'll go with it. Got it. Okay. Uh, all right, that's good. I will... What am I going to pick? I'm going to pick as my seventh pick on the left-hand side. Now I'm going to get into the defense here. Crystal Dunn. Okay. Uh, 
you can teach all sorts of tactics and you can teach technique and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, the ability to play multiple positions and as we saw this summer, an ability to play that left back position with her speed, I think that that is going to be key. I got her right behind Landon Donovan. So there's that overlapping potential right there. Also the covering uh, with that type of speed when Landon gets caught out of position, which we know it's gonna happen at some point. I think she's going to be okay to shut down that left-hand side. So Crystal Dunn on that left-hand side behind Landon Donovan uh, at left back. All right, what do you got? Uh, so my next pick, uh, Clint Dempsey, as one of my front three. So the way I envision my front three is Michelle Akers is the target person, and then Mia Hamm and Clint Dempsey kind of floating behind her. So that's that's my front, nice. front three right nice. there. All right, I'm going to go to my, to my, my right-hand side, and what I'll call my right side of my team is kind of my, my bohemian right, if you will. I'm going to put Frankie Haydick on that on that right back position. So she's backing up or he's backing up Tobin Heath there. So that's an interesting right side for my uh, for my team, both from an attacking and uh, defending perspective right there. Lots of lots of love, lots of heart, lots of romance, uh, lots of hair, uh, lots of creativity, lots of flair, lots of personality, if you will. So I'm, I'm loving my my right hand side there with Frankie Haydick on the right back position. My next pick is Julie Foudy to complete my midfield three, which is uh, Foudy, Tab Ramos, and Carly Lloyd. I know that's uh, a bit unbalanced, but you, you generously let me get away with no, it. No, uh, I'm going to let you get away with it for now because I'm going to kick your ass on the field, okay? I mean, I, my, mm-hmm. I'm going to control the entire midfield, okay? And we all know that's the engine. That's the, you, You're able to control that, you know, then then everything else is going to come easy. But if that's what you want to do, that's fine. You go ahead. But I, I'm going to put my midfield three up against your midfield three anytime. Okay, so now we're moving. Well, I'm moving on to my back, which I have neglected through most of this process. I, I went back and forth as to uh, to have a male or female goalkeeper. And what I've come down to is for my ninth pick, uh, we are picking females right now. So I'm going to pick Hope Solo in goal. I'm going to need her to step it up. And that's saying a lot from one, if not the greatest goalkeeper and one of the great American uh, players ever to play the game. But I'm going to need her to step it up. I don't want any uh, you know, problems on or off the field. I don't think that that is going to happen because I, I love the fact that Hope Solo, when it's on the line, she comes to play. I think she will look at this with a chip on her shoulder. And that's that's what I that's the type of player that I want, and I think it's going to be reflected in her ability to save the ball in this type of environment. I think that while she's all already at an incredible level, I think this will only propel her to an even better level. And you would see a Hope Solo that we hadn't seen and didn't even fathom actually existed. So I'm going to go with Hope Solo and goal. And I will go with uh, Tim Howard with my next pick. Mm. So uh, I will fill my goalkeeper. And we talked about the Mia Hamm-Michelle Akers debate. The uh, U.S. men's goalkeeper three-way Tim Howard, Brad Friedel, Casey Keller debate is, I mean, you could, you know, you could rank those three any which way, but I went with Howard. I think club and country, he has the slightly better overall resume than the other two. So I went with him as my goalkeeper. Okay, I have two picks left uh, and I have to pick a male right now. I'm going to pick Carlos Bocanegra, longtime captain and center back for the uh, men's national team. He's got that that nice left foot uh, over there on that left-hand side with, with Dunn and Landon. So I'm going to go with Carlos Bocanegra uh, right there. I think, uh, I think that's a solid choice. And I will close out my team with Kelly O'Hara at left oh, back. Okay. That's good, too. That's good, too. And I will close out my team with Christy Pierce. We knew her for many, many years, and certainly when she was doing – uh, you know, for the most part, when she was doing the great things, and one of the reasons why I picked her was her, her great ability. We uh, knew her as Christy Rampone. Uh, so she she didn't go forward. That's not what she was all about. She is just there to defend. She loves to defend. Uh, she's one of the greats of the game when it came to defending. Incredible longevity, incredible durability, uh, and ultimately incredible talent. So I, I'm happy with my back four there of Dunn, Hope, Rampone, Pierce, uh, Pierce Rampone, and Frankie Hayden. All right, so we did say that we were going to play a 4-3-3, and uh, we will put it up in the way that we each want it. Uh, we, we also understand that we wanted some leeway here, and you can kind of do some different things. But, I, you know, as I said, I, I started thinking about this 
before we recorded the show last night and I started to put down names and then I started to get into why am I picking this person? Why am I picking this person? Does this look good? I did want to have some balance. I did want to look at a team and say that team could, could compete. Uh, I didn't want to say that team was out of balance or that team was top heavy or that team isn't going to be able to defend or anything like that. So I'm happy with, uh, with my 11. And hey, you know, you can uh, do this on your own. You can get with a friend and go back and forth and find out what 11 you come up with. As, as, you, uh, you, know, as you know, we're going to go back and forth. And so just because uh, we don't have an, uh, somebody in our 11 doesn't mean that we wouldn't pick them. But let us know what, uh, what you would do with your 11. Tag somebody else out there and do your own type of draft. It's not as easy as it, as it sounds or as you think. It makes you think about the attributes that each player has. It makes you think about, you know, the, the positives and negatives of, of each player. And it makes you think of how would it ultimately look if we took the field as a united American team with both men and women? Would that be something that you would want to see? Would that be something that would be entertaining, that would be interesting? Uh, is that something that possibly could happen in the future? I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see it. I don't know about you, Mossy, but I'd like to see it. What about you? Well, the, the two notable omissions for me, uh, two players that going into this exercise, I would have thought if they were available, I would have definitely jumped on them. And somehow, as you mentioned, it's hard that you start running out of spots quickly. Claudio Reyna yep. is nowhere to be found here. I sort of had it as if, Two of my three midfielders were going to be women. That left one spot for a man. It sort of came down to Tab versus Claudia Reyna. I went Tab. Are you okay with that? Is that the? Uh... I am, and that, you know that's no that's not a knock on Claudio. I, I like you said. I, I I was doing this, and I started running out, especially when we, when we went with six and five. We could have gone with five and six, but we just decided to go with uh, six and uh, six and five. And you know, there's as I say all the time, we are human beings, and we come with our inherent biases and, and histories uh, when it comes to these things. And so you're thinking about it as a, as a human being and you're trying to say, well, well, would, would this person actually be able to do something here? Or if this actually played out, would, would this person naturally move over here? But you know, this is, I don't know. I thought it was a, a really cool exercise. Uh, and well, then the other, the other, I went acres over Wambach, which was one that I sort of agonized over. And then, uh, and then Megan Rapino also wasn't picked, which uh, is a bit surprising. Listen, I, I know she's somebody who, you know, it, it, is it fair to say, not that I don't want anybody upset here, but her level of fame has sort of disproportionate to her ability. She's a very, very good player, but you wouldn't consider her strictly as a player on the level of a Mia Hamm, Carly Lloyd, Michelle Akers, right, in terms of the U.S. women's uh, sort of pantheon. I think the, the, it's, not, it's not a problem, it's just the reality that when we think about Megan Rapinoe, the image and the personality and all the off-field type of attention, it tends to take precedent. It tends to color everything that we, that we say or see about her as a soccer player. If Megan Rapinoe, if all that she was judged on was the actual soccer, she would not be the icon uh, and the, um, the star that she is right now. And that's not to say that she's not a great soccer player. She is. And the goals that she scored, the awards that she has won, the success that she has brought, just from a pure soccer standpoint, that puts her in an echelon that absolutely is fair to talk about her as one of the greats of the game. But she transcended the sport because of the things she said, the things that she did, and then she accompanied, accompanied it with great performance on the field. Uh, but without, without one of those things, we're not looking at her in the, in, the same, in the same way. And I'm happy that it happened to her because she has used that, uh, that power. And she has, in her way, made soccer more important and, and made soccer more accessible and made soccer more successful. Ultimately, that's what I want. And I want, it, I want it to be in America. I want it to be from an American player. And that's, uh, that's what she has done. But you're absolutely right in that the way that we talk about her and view her is very, very different because of the personality and the star that she has become and all of the different things that surround her that have nothing to do necessarily with actually kicking the ball. And that's not it's not her fault. It has nothing to do with fault. She, she plays that up and she has used that to her advantage. And believe me, I know about doing that. 
and uh, I don't begrudge her that. That's that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So, uh, and we will never be able to separate that. So that's a that's a good thing. Mossy, anything else? Well, one last thing I want to get in before your your final thoughts, because I'm still getting a lot of tweets about this, even several weeks later. History now remembers it as if I didn't like season two of the Sunderland Till I Die documentary. So I do want to clarify my comments there because I'm getting crushed on Twitter for it. Uh, I liked it. I liked season two very much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it worked great as a sequel to season one. But I did talk to some people, including yourself, who didn't like it as much. And I was trying to sort of take a step back and understand where those people might be coming from. And I thought, well, maybe I liked it so much because I had seen season one. Maybe as a standalone documentary, it wasn't quite as good as the first season. So that's all I said. And yet I've got people tweeting at me uh, about how great it was. I'm an idiot. And what are you talking about? So I just wanted to get that off my chest and clarify my thoughts. (laughs) So what I hear is that you hate Sunderland. (laughs) Okay, both uh, as a team and just as a concept. All right. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was that good. So and I didn't think it was and don't don't have me assess it after seeing the first season. If you're not willing to have me compare and contrast with I don't think you can stand it alone unless unless you don't watch the first season and then you can make that assessment. But this is a continuation. You want to make it a completely different documentary and a completely different show. Fine. Go ahead. That's fine. But that's what I was given. And I'm always, it's, I think it's completely fair to, to compare and contrast it with that first season. But we know that sometimes things are taken out of context, Mossy, and sometimes you are painted into a corner that you don't deserve. I hope you're going to be okay. You're not going to cry, are you? Are you going to be all right? No, I'll be all right. All right. It's going to be okay. It's just, it's, it's just people voicing their opinion and their you know, difference of opinion. And that's part of what makes our country great and our world great. Uh, okay, that people have that platform to be able to tell you how badly you suck, okay? Uh, all right, we've come to the end. Anything else, Mossy, uh, before we uh, go and I give you my uh, one for the road here? No, that's it. All right, so my one for the road here is, uh, I was thinking back uh, about uh, my past in soccer and it's an, it's an interesting course. Maybe not, maybe it's not interesting, I don't know, but I was thinking about the concept of, of leverage uh, as it pertains to sports and as it, as it pertains to life. And as you go through life, you'll, you'll, you learn these phrases uh, and then you actually learn what they mean in practice in life. And so I'll tell you about the first time that I learned about leverage and it's directly related to the sport of soccer. Uh, for those that have listened before, you know that I attended the great institution of Rutgers University, exit nine off the turnpike in New Jersey, the State University of uh, New Jersey. I was incredibly fortunate to be able to uh, to go there. I went there as basically a, a walk-on in that I wasn't a scholarship and I was at the agriculture school for the first two years of my existence there. Not because I wanted to be at the agriculture school, but because that's where <laughs> the only place that they, we, that they would let me in. So for the first two years, I was in the agriculture school, but I was playing for the uh, team. I was the captain of the team. We went to the final four. I was all American. So uh, from a sports perspective, it had gone very, very well for me, but I wasn't on scholarship and I wasn't at the place that I needed to be in order to major in English, which was a different college within the uh, Rutgers University college system. It was very, very difficult at a time for normal students, shall we say, to transfer what they call a dean to dean transfer, where you go from one college to another college, even within the actual university system. But that's what I needed to do in order to major in English. I walked into my coach's office and I said, hi, uh, this is what I've done over the last two years. I can transfer anywhere in the country right now and play immediately because I'm not a scholarship athlete. Back then, if you were a scholarship athlete, you would have to sit out a year. I was able to transfer immediately uh, to any place, and there were plenty of places now after they had seen what I had done in the soccer field that would gladly have me. Within 24 hours, okay, I had both a dean-to-dean transfer and a scholarship. And that is when I first learned about leverage and the power that you have to recognize in yourself and how to use that. Uh, Because I had something that they wanted and they had something that I wanted. And over the years, uh, I've recognized at at, at different times. Was it unfair? Um, Did other students at Rutgers have that opportunity? No, absolutely not. It was, uh, you know, I used what was at my disposal and I used it to my advantage to get the things uh, that, I, uh, that I needed. I didn't, it wasn't illegal or anything like that, 
It was just stating the facts. It was negotiation. And whether it's negotiating contracts later on or anything else, you use what is at your disposal and you use that leverage in order to get the things uh, that, you, that you need. All of that is to say is as you go through, uh, as you go through life, you will fi- you know, find different situations where you use what is, e- what is ever available and what is at your disposal in order to get the, things, uh, get the things that you need. And as I said, this isn't a hostage type of situation or anything like that. This is business. This is negotiation. And sometimes you get everything you want. Sometimes you get a little of what you want. Sometimes you don't get what you want. But soccer in that moment had given me the power and the leverage to go about doing the things that I needed to do and to get me the things that I needed to do, which was obviously uh, scholarship money and being at a place where I could major in English, which in normal circumstances, without that leverage and without that uh, opportunity, it would not have been, well, it would not have been as easy to do. And so that was, uh, that's my leverage story from, uh, from a long time ago. And since that time, I've found different ways to use it. And by the way, it's been used against me. It's a, it's a common type of tech, uh, technique and tactic, uh, tactic that everybody has out there. So I think about that, that often because I was scared to death to do that. And I did it all by myself. Sometimes you have agents and different people do it nowadays. But I did it all by myself. I walked in there. And there's always the chance that they say, well, fine, go. And, uh, you know, there's the, that's the risk that you take. But if you believe in yourself and you believe in what you're doing and that, in what you deserve, they will recognize that it's mutually beneficial. Um, but you have to know how much leverage you have, and as I said, when and how to apply that leverage. Mossy, anything before we head off into the uh, great unknown here? No, that's it. As each and every week, uh, we say we appreciate uh, the fact that you continue to listen. We know that everybody's routine and ritual has been thrown out of whack, and we do appreciate that you are finding time uh, to include this as part of your entertainment out there. We know it's not necessarily easy because of that lack of uh, routine that people have, but we we really appreciate and we are incredibly fortunate that we have people that want to listen and want to watch uh, at this time. Hope everybody is continuing to stay safe and sane as we go through this and go through this together. As I say each and every time, I do believe uh, that good times and better times are ahead. I do believe that this uh, too shall pass, but you know, this is something historic that we're all going through uh, together. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. And we have good times and we have bad times. And hopefully this is a little respite. This is a little escape uh, from the realities and uh, the situation that we have going on. Mossy, we will talk again uh, next week. Tune into all the different things that we have going, especially from a, a Fox perspective. Uh, we have indoor soccer, our weekly show that airs on uh, on Sunday. We have Stu, Stu Holden and his gang uh, doing the uh, EMLS FIFA games over there. And that's, that's really labor intensive, but it's really interesting and fun and entertaining to see the productions that are coming out when it comes to uh, the FIFA game and the players and the professional e-gamers that we are using and, and see how they play and the competition uh, and the fierce competition that comes out uh, from that perspective. And as we mentioned, who knows? Who knows if Bundesliga is around the corner, but fingers crossed that it is because that would be a welcome return to uh, people kicking the ball. But we'll see how that all, uh, all plays out. Send us your comments, questions, and concerns out there. Use that Ask Alexi hashtag. Write, rate, subscribe, review, download, do all of those different things, uh, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or whether it's on YouTube or whether it's Spotify or all the different platforms out there. We appreciate you you, you doing that. We will talk again next week. And as always, size the day.